لهم حديد ونار لهم حديد ونار وهم من القشر Welcome back to the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast. I'm joined by our good friend and regular contributor Nasser Widadi. Um, the last time we spoke was about six months ago on the podcast, um, episode 16, Mauritania's Democratic Tipping Point. Wow, actually, it's been six months. Time runs. I didn't even realize that. For me, it was like as if it was two weeks ago. And we were talking about the election and the possibility of uh, the opposition of making gains over authoritarianism. That hasn't quite happened. Uh, it's got worse, and now it's become very personal, hasn't it? The case of your brother, who's been arrested in the last week in Mauritania for whistleblowing on a massive scandal. Can you tell me more about that? Oh, yes. So, Abdurrahman, who is my older brother, <laughs> lo and behold, uh, um, he's 47, married, father to a 14-year-old boy. And um, by profession, he is uh, an entrepreneur. And he's also a staunch dissident. Uh, he's become a political dissident even before me. Um, Runs in the family. It seems so. And uh, he's one of the most read and followed uh, uh, thought leaders in the country. His Facebook page is one of the most popular. This is in a country that has roughly 300,000 Facebook users. Um, his live broadcasts get up to 14,000 views. And in early January 2016, he published a, an article warning of a massive Ponzi scam that was taking place in the country run by a charlatan. His name is Sheikh Rada Saidi. By the way, for our Egyptian friends, the, the Mauritanian joke is that um, uh, Mauritania will become basically the first country in the world where a Saidi managed to swindle the entire nation. Um, a little bit of Arab uh, uh, insiders baseball, and <laughs> we'll explain it some other time. And so Sheikh Rada, who's like this charlatan who's um, cultivated an image of a man of God and a miracle worker who has baraka, started approaching people seven years ago, offering them an enticing deal. You sell me your house. And I'll buy it from you at an above the market price. But, and I'll give you a down, pay, a cash down payment and a credit note uh, for the remainder of the amount. And usually the payment was due anywhere between one to two, uh, to three years, depending on how big the amount is. So this guy is basically uh, an imam. He's like a, a religious leader. He's a religious figure. Um, he's he's not a real estate dealer. He's not um, some guy who controls a, a big real estate company or something. He's just a religious figure, and he's going around offering to buy people's houses at above the market rate and giving them IOUs. Exactly, and then immediately flipping the property back in the market at an at a, at a steeply discounted price, and the the percentile of the discount with time kept on getting deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, so what they would do, they would, like, for example, I, I have a home and it's worth $100,000. They would come to me and they'd say, we'll give you, um, we'll you $140,000 for this. Here's a down payment of $70,000 and the rest will pay you in a year, anywhere between a year or three years in installments. And immediately they will go and flip back the, the, the same house, which is they they basically not paid for it $140,000 and they will flip it back for $60,000. Hmm. And how, how much how much would the victims typically get in the initial down payment? Anywhere between 40 to 60% of the uh, of the agreed amount. Hmm. And then the, like uh, like with, with the sale in reality what my brother discovered in his clue the first clue that that cued him into the whole thing. He's an entrepreneur and a contractor. He's done a lot of uh, real estate stuff in the past. And the thing that shocked him is that he realized, couldn't understand why the real estate markets were plunging hmm. over a sustained period of time, which was like about 
six months before he wrote that first article in January 2016. So he, he this guy was made off of Mauritania, was basically doing this on a scale that was crashing the country's real estate market. Sheikh Ponzi, actually. That's what the Mauritanians have <laughs> uh, de- uh, decided to call him. Others decided to call him um, the desert made off. Um, w- take whichever you like. Take your pick. Um, Abdurrahman estimated that uh, the uh, the scam, the total amount uh, involved in the scam is something like past the $200 million mark. And remember, Mauritania's entire GDP is $5 billion a year. So basically, 4% of the nation's GDP went up in smoke, affecting wow. uh, between seven to 9,000 families. In a country of what's the population? 4.5 million. Wow, so that's a significant percentage of the population. Yeah, if you take like 7,000 and you average it on the birth rates of Mauritania, the average Mauritanian family um, has anywhere between three to six kids. So you do the math. It's it's staggering. And um, the problem was that the, the scam imploded sometime last year b- because of two things. Because Abdurrahman's like muckcracking, relentless investigative work on his Facebook page started raising awareness. Initially, he was dismissed. And then he and the family, myself included, were subjected to enormous pressure to stop him. I personally got phone calls here in Boston from people within Sheikh Ponzi's uh, circles um, begging me to intervene with my brother. And of course, I was like, first of all, look, guys, I live in the United States. I have other fish to fry. And push come to shove, if you must know, Abdurrahman is my older brother. So he doesn't take orders from my own parents, let alone from me. <laughs> and this is not exactly news because that's how he was since he was age four, according to my father. <laughs> <laughs> and the th- the third point is that Look, I'm not responsible. He's he's a, he's a vaccinated adult. He knows exactly what he's doing, and he believes in what he's doing. He's not doing this because he is looking for payment or retribution. He wants to save the Mauritanian citizens who were left abandoned to be scammed by the very state that is supposed to protect them. Um, and what has the state done? Oh, a, gross, a grand total of nothing. Because Sheikh Rada, you should know, um, now as the uh, the Ponzi scheme started, like it's imploded basically. Sheikh Rada announced it publicly. Um, you, you'd be amused to know this. Uh, he, he conducts all of his PR via WhatsApp. So he, sometime at the end of last year, um, he issued a public statement via uh, a WhatsApp voice message. Um, that he is pausing, putting a halt, a temporary halt to all transactions, and that he is promising to soon pay uh, all of his debts as he is looking into a new partnership to to develop a phosphate deposit, which was granted uh, allegedly to um, one of his followers who's a major businessman in Mauritania, and that um, once the development of the phosphate deposit is finished, he will be able to pay back all of his creditors. Which, by the way, Abdurrahman was very quick to point out that, first of all, this is a blatant lie because, according to Mauritanian law, only the state can exploit natural resources. And that even if, even if this were to be true, um, if you take the phosphate price on commodities world market, he did the math. The actual amount of the deposit is not worth $200 million. And that uh, the state will have to spend somewhere uh, between 280 to $340 million to actually get the project up and running. And so it was another lie in, uh, designed to pacify the creditors. And um, unfortunately, the, uh, the, the creditors, in, they realized very quickly after they, many of them tried to go file official complaints before the Mauritanian courts in order to get um, their, their grievances addressed, the courts wouldn't take their complaints. They were just turned away. They were just turned away, and which led them to, be, to take to the streets and protest, and they created at least three committees 
of victims of Sheikh Rada who are seeking uh, justice. And they have been protesting for the last month and a half in the streets. If you go to my Twitter feed, at Widadi, there's a thread there with at least one video showing the police um, uh, protecting Sheikh Rada and at the same time beating up creditors to, to disperse their demonstrations. And there was even an one unfortunate incident. Thank God no lives were lost. One of the creditors came to Sheikh Ponzi's uh, compound, which is uh, something like outside of the capital, Nouakchott, and tried to meet the scammer. And the scammer's followers beat him up, roughed him up. So in an act of desperation, he reached out to his car, pulled out a, a 12-gauge gun and opened fire. Thank God it was not an automatic weapon, and thank God no one died. And um, that's how bad this, the, this is. And Abdurrahman published documents, cell deeds, showing that the president's own family purchased benefits from the scam, and then he basically uh, added one to one, which equals two, which is they are benefiting from this thing. And in exchange, they are the, the only one who could prevent the court system and the police from investigating this case and arresting the, the scammer and putting an end to it is the president of the country. So in other words, he's not only uh, protecting him, but he's also benefiting from the scam and therefore participating in the plunder of Mauritania. This is only one example of sample of his corruption. So in 2016, your brother noticed the real estate prices crashing and did some digging and found that there was this big Ponzi scheme going on. And he started, he started to publish um, his notes on this on Facebook. And over time, this became bigger, got an audience. People started realizing as the victims were coming out and saying they'd been scammed. Um, and then this is earlier this year, the documents that he posted on Facebook um, around the time that the protests were starting, he published documents proving that the president's family was directly involved. Yes, correct. And the most decisive factor here is that actually, and this is probably the first time that this is said in public, but I'm, I'm comfortable now uh, disclosing it. Actually, he managed, uh, he got the documents, but because the people who, who sold those properties were not willing to come forward, he leaked it in the local press, and it was distributed. Mm. And then he published it on his Facebook page um, to make sure that it gets the maximum distribution possible. And uh, he interviewed some of the people um, who were victims, but they were not willing to come forward with their real names. And one other factor that got him even more determined to denounce this thing and stop it is that sometime two months into his investigation in 2016, he discovered that one of our distant relatives, a cousin of my mom's, was one of among the victims who lost her home. And so the hot potato landed like in his lap. So there was no choice. He had to continue doing what he was doing. And um, he was arrested along with the Sheikh al-Jiddu, who's a fellow blogger and a transparency uh, activist as well in his own right. And Sheikh al-Jiddu is 49, father uh, of five. And get this irony of ironies, his last job, he was a, cons a legal consultant for European Union-funded project about good governance and transparency. <laughs> oh my God, the irony. <laughs> you couldn't make this up. And have they uttered a peep about his um, jailing? Yeah, they're trying, like, basically they pulled him in to cover up on the fact that this was, uh, was tailor-made to go after Abdurrahman, and they were like, yeah, we'll nab him to, to beautify the thing. And um, the, the means that they used to do this is another fascinating story. Uh, and, and bear with me in, um, as I break it down. So let's, let's just catch up. Basically, um, after he published these documents, um, which was about a month ago, a month and a half ago, is that right? Yeah, two months, I think. I don't remember the exact date, but everything is on his Facebook wall, and I'll be more than happy to walk you through it. And then a week ago, um, I think exactly a week or eight days ago, he was um, he was summoned to the police station um, and was arrested, basically. Yes, him and the sheikh. But there is there is a there is a prequel 
to this, okay. which I need to explain to you. Yeah. So the prequel goes in three phases. Um, remember, Muhammad um, Abdul Aziz has been shuttling back and forth on, st- on, on state and private visits to the UAE. Mm-hmm. And because people know, like everyone, it's public knowledge. He's on, on like his, the army basically showed him the door and he's going to be leaving power in June. Um, uh, everyone suspects that he's, he is busy trying to funnel his fortune outside and uh, stash it somewhere where it's not going to be seized. And um, someone started a rumor um, that he may be um, trying to uh, unlock a $2 billion bank account that was frozen in Dubai because it was suspected of money laundering. And this was triggered because all of a sudden, Mauritania, starting like three months ago, was cut off from the world banking circuit. You cannot now uh, transfer, like make a bank transfer or wire transfer to Mauritania. And that, that was done because of fears of fraud, fears of money laundering. Yes, and I looked into it and I contacted my own sources. I went to people in the treasury, I went to people in Wall Street, I went to people uh, in the banking sector, and uh, what I can confirm is the following, that Mauritania is under no uh, sanctions from the United States Treasury. The most likely scenario of what happened is is that the compliance departments, we suspect in Citibank, decided that because Mauritania is not compliant and because its banking sector is completely opaque, that it represents a a big threat for money laundering and illicit money transfer and potentially drug and terrorism money uh, transactions. And in what looks like an algorithmic screw-up, decided... Um, that to trash the country's ranking. And since the, like, because of the consolidation of the bank sector, the big fives in the US, they exchanged this information. Uh, so it created a domino effect. So everybody immediately blacklisted Mauritania. And now you can't make a, a transfer to Mauritania or out of Mauritania. I am stuck right now trying to get to figure out how I can get money to pay some of the legal fees mm. for my brother. So it's a nightmare. And um, so that was the basis for the concoction of that rumor. And, and immediately, there was a group of Mauritanian bloggers who wrote a, a letter, a petition, to Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum, the Emir of Dubai, asking him to not allow any monies stolen from Mauritania to be parked in his country, and demanding that he restitutes um, any eventual monies owned by any uh, Abdul Aziz or anyone in his entourage. Basically, give back the stolen money. Give back the stolen money. Of course, uh, there's no evidence that there, any of this happened other than them thinking that and then rushing to write the petition. And I want to be stressed super clearly. Abdurrahman and Sheikh were not among those bloggers. They had nothing to do with the petition. And they didn't even sign it and their name is not on it. Mm. And so now we kick into the third phase of this, which is then Al-Quds al-Arabi, the um, pan-Arab uh, uh, newspaper published out of London, formerly owned by Abdelbari Atwan, uh, published an article just reporting that about the petition to the Emir of Dubai. And then it, it basically there was a ping-pong effect, an echo chamber effect, where the local press picked it up, and then Al Jazeera picked picked up both. Hmm. So the news went viral. The the news went viral. So the president was asked about it publicly by the local press, and he said, "No, it's false, and it might, like it's a bunch of bloggers who spread this, and uh, something needs to be done with it." That's when all of a sudden, a group of gongos, and that's government pro government NGOs, which is. Uh, another term any Middle East watcher should familiarize themselves with. These government-operated NGOs. Exactly, who are basically empty shells used to, um, to create the perception of the existence of, uh, of uh, civil society and even serve regime member to go and funnel money um, and make money off of the donor and aid circuit around the world. And even do astroturfing, so put out a bunch of uh, reports annually praising the government's human rights progress and you know, cre- yes. creating that bubble of false news. Yes. 
And um, it's a technique that, that was widely used under Mubarak. It was widely used in Morocco. And even the Algerians at one point uh, took a stab at it. Um, and, and, and so once the news went viral and the president made the statement, lo and behold, a bunch of gongos filed a complaint with the Nouakchott prosecutor, Nouakchott West prosecutor, asking for, to investigate the president for alleged malfeasance and theft of public monies. And it listed uh, about six to seven people who are known activists and bloggers, including my brother Abdurrahman and Sheikh and others. Then the, the complaint was given to the Economic Crimes Unit of the Mauritanian police, and lo and behold, only Abdurrahman and the Sheikh were summoned. This was early March. They were summoned for questioning, and they sat in for the interrogation for four hours. And Abdurrahman later on reported about the fact on his uh, Facebook page and then briefed me personally. And he told me that during the interrogation, um, the prosecutor wanted um, to basically frame him for that rumor going viral and asked him uh, rather the rhetorical question, which backfired. Uh, it's like, if you think the president is stealing, why didn't you come co file compl a complaint with us? We're here. This is our job. So Abdurrahman's response is, is like, well, I have been investigating the Sheikh, uh, Sheikh Ponzi scandal for the past three years, and you guys are refusing to look into it. Why aren't you investigating it? And like, why would I bother coming to you knowing that you will never investigate the president because you take your orders from him? So, according to Abdurrahman, the interrogator or police officer was rather embarrassed. So, that's separation of powers 101. Exactly. And um, then he was released on a condition of turning over his passport and ID card. The same thing was done to Sheikh. And, of course, I believe, like Sheikh, there's a subtle, subtle thing to show you how ridiculous and outrageous the whole thing here. Abdurrahman publishes in Arabic. Sheikh publishes in French. So they picked them because they wanted to respect the bilingual balance of the Mauritanian <laughs> media landscape. That's the real reason. And uh, the, uh, the, then they, they took, uh, took their passports and their IDs and they seized them. Of course, the message was clear. You're still under investigation and um, this is a preventive measure to, because you represent a uh, a flight risk, which is also ludicrous. My brother had no intention of leaving, nor did Sheikh, um, because they want to uh, continue uh, continue doing what they enjoy doing best, which is go speaking truth to power. And um, then come Friday, after another article was published in Al Jazeera, this time speaking, reporting directly about the Ponzi scheme and the fallout from it. The following morning, Abdurrahman and the Sheikh got phone calls to show up at the Economic Crimes Unit. They show up. They are told you are under arrest. They are locked up in separate cells and their lawyers uh, are not allowed to see them until nine hours into the whole thing. And this was last Friday, the 22nd of March. Exactly. And, um, and then, of course, the family, again, me waking up here, make, uh, you know, making my breakfast, looking at my schedule, and then heading out to a meeting uh, with one of my clients. I get this panicking phone call from my younger brother telling me, hey, your bro got detained. I was like, what do you mean detained? He was like, you know, uh, they called him in. He's under lock and stock. Oh, seriously? He's like, yeah. And I was like, okay, um, keep me posted. Just please don't make sure that you don't like you break the news gently to my dad. My dad is 70 years old, has a heart condition, and don't want to upset him. And um, his wife, my sister-in-law, who's uh, finishing a, a master's program in Tunisia, was there at the time abroad. And also she got the news, so I had the, the unpleasant uh, task of being the one calling her to inform her, hey, your husband just got arrested. 
Um, so she hops on a plane and comes back and um, um, I start looking into the whole thing and I have to say that uh, I have to explain this to the listeners because it's a it's a critical point to understand the f- like the the full context here. The old um, media uh, dictum says that if it doesn't bleed, it doesn't lead, and because Mauritania almost never bleeds, it's never in the news, at least in the English speaking world. And whatever coverage out there is like really folkloric. Uh, and superficial and hardly ever related to the reality of Mauritania, which put me in the rather difficult spot, which is I spent a lifetime advocating for political dissidents across the planet. I personally have a batting uh, record of getting 14 people out of jail uh, across about 12 countries. And um, this one landed home, very close to home, because this time it was my own brother. And um, other than the emotional shock and the anger, um, I had I was confronted for the first time with the dilemma of how do I d- deal with this, given that no reporter ever cares about Mauritania. The Mueller, the Mueller investigation is going down at the same time. And why would any, like sort of how would I even convince any reporter to, to even look into this? And of course, um, those questions are being answered as we speak. Let's leave it at that. Um, but the, the difficulty ultimately is, is that campaigning for, for someone whose name no one has ever heard and whose countries no most Americans cannot, and Westerners, sometimes even Arabs, cannot locate on a map, creates a unique challenge. Luckily, I, I've, I've spent the last 20 years campaigning and advocating. I think I can swing it with your help, dear listeners. Please uh, follow me on Twitter, at Wadadi, and hit the retweet button. You have no idea how helpful that is um, in this case. And yesterday, um, they were kept in, in basically in jail with no legal basis for 48 hours. Uh, until Monday, and then they were shuffled back and forth between the economic crime unit and a police station. And then uh, yesterday they were presented um, in front of a judge, this time in the, luckily in the presence of, uh, of their lawyers, the day after they had subjected them to an 18-hour uh, nonstop interrogation and then broke into my brother's apartment without a, war- a search warrant and turned it upside down and then seized his computer. Um, they finally allowed their lawyers to sit down with them on uh, uh, yesterday uh, in a pretrial hearing. And then um, when the lawyers demanded to see the, uh, the evidence used to prosecute and uh, charge them with slander under Article 348 of the Mauritanian Penal Code, which carries uh, up to five years in prison, um, the uh, the prosecutor pulled out a printout of an, a post on Abdurrahman's Facebook page from March 4th that was discussing the articles and the rumor about the $2 billion, alleging that Abdurrahman and Sheikh were the first to publish it, the news ever, and that they are responsible for its virality and for its spread to foreign media. So they were basically trying to get them on publishing this news um, using screenshots of posts in which they were discussing the news which had already been published. Exactly. So the lawyers swiftly produced uh, a printout of the Al Jazeera article from March 2nd showing not only that the news but also referencing the Quds al-Arabi article referencing the petition from the bloggers and referencing uh, uh, President Abdul Aziz's reaction. And I, um, I was able to, with, with a little crowdsourcing, which has um, happened rather super quickly, friends from all over Mauritania reached out and provided me with screenshots proving uh, not only beyond the shade of any doubt that Abdurrahman and Sheikh weren't even the first people to publish this, they weren't even the first to comment on it, they weren't even the first to share it. 
The whole thing originated in two anonymous accounts on February 22nd, um, one in Arabic and one in French, and one of them has since been deleted. That's where this uh, the whole thing started. So the the when the lawyers produced the evidence completely infirming and destroying the government's allegation, the embarrassed judge declined to release them and remand them from pretrial uh, detention uh, by saying that he has further evidence, solid evidence, but that he cannot show it to them because it's national security state secrets. <laughs> and this is uh, on an accusation of slandering the president. Voila. <laughs> which, is, which is like, if this wasn't real, this is something that could have come out of an Adel Imam movie. This is like Hassan Sabanich, uh, 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 part two. And, um, it's, it's, and of it's, course, it's Mr. Bean does dictatorship for people not getting the Arabic references. Yeah, it's basically Mr. Bean. Mr. Bean goes to court. Mr. <laughs> Bean, the judge. Uh, uh, Mr. Bean, the barrister. Uh, to use your, with all due respect to your English background, Ahmed. And uh, now, of course, we know a little bit of ba- historical background. Pre-trial detention is um, the preferred tactic of Muhammad Abdul Aziz to use against his opponents. And uh, a whole lot of people, the, li- the last of them is Senator Muhammad Ghadda, who I mentioned briefly in, in the past podcast about Mauritania. He was actually the leader of the revolt against the Senate that ultimately uh, triggered the dynamic that ultimately saw Muhammad Abdul Aziz being sh- shown the door by the military. They kept him in prison for a year, and uh, including something like six months or seven months of pre-trial detention, and then charged him, and then were like, okay, you can leave now on time served. Mm. So you don't even need a trial in that scenario. You just hold them until you're done, and you charge them and let them go. Exactly. And the whole point is like it's a punitive, vindictive measure by Muhammad Abdul Aziz against my brother Abdurrahman Wadadi and uh, Sheikh Al Jiddu. The problem for Abdul Aziz, I'm sad to say, is, is that his intention was to try to quiet some of his most fiercest critics in order to prevent the Sheikh Ponzi scandal from getting international coverage. Guess what? It's creating international coverage. The Barbara Streisand rule. Exactly. And I can tell you that a whole bunch of newspapers are now looking into it. In the English-speaking world. So to recap this entire story, there's this uh, religious leader, this Imam Sheikh Rada, who is uh, going around in Mauritania for at least seven years, going around scamming innocent folks out of their homes, um, offering them above market prices, um, giving them a small prepayment and an IOU, and then flipping the house for less than market value to get quick money, and then disappearing on them. Uh, scammed 7,000 families out of their homes. Um, your brother is diligently uncovering this and reporting on it for three years. Um, he eventually published documents on his Facebook page showing that the president's family personally benefited by buying these properties below market price from the scammer. Um, who is at the time receiving police protection and the courts are declining to prosecute him in the face of complaints. And when the whole news goes viral and people start protesting and newspapers start looking into it, the government locks up your brother and his friend under slander charges in an attempt to silence him for whistleblowing, basically. Exactly. And the entire thing backfires now as the world is learning about uh, the Sheikh Ponzi scam and it's uh, going to be reported on in English across the planet. And the whole reason for this is because pressure was placed on the government through the last round of elections, and now Abdelaziz cannot run for a third term. He can't change the constitution to stay, so he has to leave power. Therefore, he has to get his money out of the country. All of his uh, ill-gotten gains that he's spent years plundering the country, he now has to find a way to keep it safe because he's uh, created a country in which there's no rule of law, there's no independent institutions, and the minute he's not Mr. President, he's no longer safe. Ahmed, the World Project on Justice, headed by Madeleine Albright, has an annual index. And in the 2019 uh, version of it, it's the Rule of Law Index. 
Mauritania is placed uh, um, in the bottom five countries in terms of rule of law in the world. And it's ranked as the seventh most corrupt country on the planet. That is actually impressive. Yeah. Well, and this is actually the, the, the bloggers, including Abdelrahman back in the day, used to um, to joke that we like we're, like in, when it comes to human development indexes, transparency and corruption and investment indexes, we're the world's champion just from the bottom. And uh, it's, it's a story that you see everywhere. Um, you get into power and you are now stuck. You kind of checkmated yourself. You can no longer leave. Yes, it's like, and it also, it's, it's not only that you're 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 stuck and checkmated. Is that first of all, dude? Why plunder? Like, why are you like devouring your country's economic resources? And what what on earth do you think that is going to happen if you do that? And the third and most important point is is that this is exactly why we need to have um, a parliament that has teeth and institutions that can. Um, have a, a, a power, you know, balance powers and uh, balances and checks. Because if you don't, ultimately, let me, and I f- bear the full res- legal responsibility from my words, Muhammad wal Abdul Aziz, the difference between him and his predecessors, as bad as they were, Muhammad wal Abdul Aziz basically is the head of a crime family. He's a, f- a crime family boss in, in the vein of the Sopranos who turned Mauritania into his private corporation to make money. And so, like, instead of it being called the Islamic Republic of Mauritania, in reality, it became Aziz and Associates Incorporated. And the difference between a CEO and a normal CEO and Wil Abdelaziz is that Wil Abdelaziz uh, is working, walking around with a diplomatic passport and immunity and has a flag, a seat at the UN, and an army. And a CEO has to report to his board at the end of the day. Yes. Uh, and the board of the Aziz Inc. is made of Mohammed Wil Abdul Aziz and his uh, wife, son, son-in-law, and, and daughter. People used to pose, like Libyans used to pose this question about Gaddafi. Like, the uprising breaks out in 2011. The guy has been in charge for 42 years. He's robbed the country blind. The country has gone backwards for 42 years, and he's taken, what, 80 billion, 120 billion, 160 billion. Nobody even knows the number, that, like the, uh, um, the, the cash amount that he had taken out of the country. Why would you still want to rule after 42 years, and why do you still want more money after all of this? I think that it's because uh, you said it yourself beautifully. It creates this vicious cycle. Like they, they dig themselves in, and in the process of of of, of enriching themselves by plundering the, the people, uh, they create a situation where, at the moment they leave power, they lose they lose the immunity, and then they lose all the money that they've stolen in the process, and so that creates a, like a, a deadlock situation. So in normal times, I would say, and I'm actually even still part of me, still thinks that, okay, fine, you stole, um, um, you can keep, let's say, keep ten million dollars to keep fifty million dollars. But we'll get back the rest, and we'll do. We'll consider the fifty million dollars sunken cost for peace and stability and peaceful transfer of power. The problem with that uh, uh, argument is, is that you're not dealing with somebody who's willing even to bargain. It's either his way or the highway. Mm. It's it's the asset mentality of uh, our guy, or we burn the country down. Exactly, and 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 it's a tragedy. And I've written recently on my Twitter feed. Uh, and I still believe it, uh, and is that problems of the Arab world and the MENA region um, are compounded by the fact is that once you understood, you understand the nature of the ruling regimes to, for what they truly are. These are crime families. These are criminal enterprises run by uh, mafia-type uh, leaders. Once you understand that, then everything falls into place can actually explain the rather weird behavior. It's not just Mauritania. Look at Algeria. Bouteflika is probably uh, the the liveliest mummy we've had since uh, King Tut was dug out of uh, his grave in the last century. Uh, yet the the kleptocracy around him, the oligarchs, insisted on keeping him 
in power. Why? Because they knew the moment this guy disappears, they will lose it all. There's a reckoning. I keep thinking of um, how it's like one of these uh, like fantasy stories where you get a blessing and a curse, or like one wish and it comes with a curse with it, um, and and the wish or the blessing is basically unlimited money. And the curse that comes with that is you can never sleep another night in your life. The minute you turn your back, the minute you try to step down or leave power, the next guy is going to come after you. <laughs> Ahmed, you just made me imagine for a second have this mental image of Abdel Fattah Sisi dressed as a Cinderella. <laughs> <laughs> no way. Yes, it's the curse, though, um, the, the blessing... The blessing is theirs and the curse is ours, ultimately, mm, yeah. because w- these guys, by the time they leave, as Qadhafi did, etc., they leave you with a black hole, a vortex ejecting instability, extremism, refugees, and endless wars. Yeah, the only way you can create a situation where you can suck up all this money, the only way you can make put your your crime syndicate family in control is by dismantling every other institution in the country um conducting all business and all diplomacy and all governance through your personal private networks um and even destroying civil society so it can't keep watch on you and it can't keep check on you and what happens to a country when it has none of those things and suddenly the crime syndicate which kept order is also suddenly gone yeah, that's the big mustache uh, curse. But still, um, the guy has got to be a kleptocrat to, you know, rob all this money. Yeah, it's 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 just fascinating. Like, um, we don't have time to go over Mohammed um, Wal Abdul Aziz's scams uh, and 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 money schemes because if I were to give you actually a decent briefing, we'll need another episode. But just here's very quickly. Um, quick samples. Other than the Sheikh Ponzi scandal, which is by, even though it involved $200 million, and he's probably getting anywhere um, uh, between 15 and 20% cut from the whole transactions, um, there's, for example, the, the, the Umm Tunsi Airport, which, was, uh, uh, which could be taught in schools as uh, the combination of corruption. Uh, plunder and absolute mismanagement. So the airport was estimated initially. Uh, it's a new international airport built uh, with the intention of upping Mauritania's capacity, uh, transit capacity to 100,000 traveler travelers. It was initially estimated to be uh, for the total cost to be around 170, 190 million euros. It ended up costing 340 billion euros. Wow, and uh, and in order to fill in the gap, the deficit, because the project almost collapsed, um, Ul Abdel Aziz's uh, workaround was to go to Mauritania's SNIM. Um, it's the state-owned iron ore, um, uh, iron ore extraction company, which is basically our equivalent to uh, Saudi Arabia's uh, Aramco. What did he do? He took their cash reserves that were put aside in order to spend, um, spend on R&D, research and development, maintenance, bonuses, uh, employees, packages, and things like that. He took the entire fund and rated it and redirected it to uh, his lousy airport. That's mind-boggling. I'm just frantically Googling yeah. the cost of Amsterdam Schiphol Airport, which is uh, yes. one of the biggest transport hubs in the world. Um, it serves all of Europe flights across to the Far East, to North America. Uh, apparently, they just built a new terminal for $350, $370 million, something like that. I don't know. I'm just Googling this live, so I could be wrong with the figures. Yeah. How much did you say the Umatunisi Airport was? 340 So it's it's basically the cost of a terminal in the busiest airport in the world. But here's the kicker, Ahmed. Do you know what is the total volume of of uh, air travel annually in Mauritania? <laughs> I can guess. <laughs> Twelve thousand. Wow. And so <laughs> the airport remained empty, and they raided SNIM's reserves, cash reserves, to to plug in this, and then they again ran out of cash. So they took the old um, the old airport. And decided to turn it into into like basically land for sale for you know um, to be sold and, and gave it to the uh, the company 
the owner of the company that got the contract in order to compensate them for eventual losses. It's crazy. And then, and then the best part of the story is, is that once the, the, the airport was inaugurated in big fanfare and pomp, um, within three months, the x-ray machines broke. <laughs> and the electrical escalators stopped. And no, like sort of, they plan. They banked on vendors uh, renting spaces um, to create revenue. No one did too expensive. Well, because they're told that they're going to have a hundred thousand people, and they're getting twelve thousand people. Exactly, and then ultimately, so once they like the whole thing was like basically going bananas. Uh, they, 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 they went to the Emiratis and the Qataris. In order to basically strike a deal with them, that bottomless pump of money. Yes, and then and then, uh, like they tried the Emiratis the first time, but the minister tried to shortchange them by asking for a um, for a two million dollar bakshish kickback to sweeten the deal. Uh, yeah, the Emiratis sent him packing and then moved on immediately and uh, next door to Senegal. Signed a deal and turned basically Dakar into one of the um, uh, the Emir- um, Emirates hub li- uh, hubs, and uh, then the Qatar and the, uh, the Emirates thing came down. Aziz the severed diplomatic ties with Qatar, and he went begging and and groveling to the Emiratis, and finally they circled back, and they said, "Okay, we're going to take over the airport, and it's going to be a twenty-five year twenty-five year lease." And you're gonna get something like it's not even partnership. They own; they're the majority stockholder owners. So he's he's selling off the assets of the state for pennies on the dollar because he gets to keep the pennies. Exactly. That's Mohammed Wal Abdul Aziz with you. Not to mention, basically, to to summarize, because I think we we're running out of time. The difference between Mohammed Wal Abdul Aziz and previous presidents is that previous presidents of Mauritania scratched the surface of uh, of the country and the surface of the land. Uh, to make money, Mohammed Wal Abdul Aziz's genius, in that, like sort of innovation, is is that he not only stole what is above the land, he stole what is below the surface, both onshore and offshore. He also has this skill of um, plundering the country without even creating any value, so there's not even anything to compensate. Yes, yes, and 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 there are so many colorful stories, but I just wish we had the time to to cover. Maybe some other time. We've uh, mentioned the mafia thing um, several times. We've mentioned it in previous podcasts, and I think we've backed it up quite well, but there may still be people out there thinking, you know, these Arabs are just being hyperbolic again. One of these days, we need to do an episode and discuss this because all of these infrastructure projects um, and, you know, hundreds of millions for infrastructure disappearing down a bottomless black hole, um, it's so reminiscent of Italy across the 20th century. I had this phase um, last summer where I became fascinated with the mafia and I got like uh, five or six books to read through the history of it. And I couldn't believe that this country was allowed into the European Union at the time. It sounded like it was in the middle of the Arab world. And we need to do an episode just looking at the similarities between the mafia control of Italy and the, the, the entire Middle East region. Um, so back to the topic at hand just before we close. Um, your brother is in a prison cell in Mauritania. He has been charged with nonsensical charges in a trial that the lawyer described as medieval. Well, what do we do? Please help me by sharing the news. Again, you can follow me on Twitter at Wedadi, W-E-D-D-A-D-Y. Please uh, show solidarity. You have no idea how much those retweets can help. Um, and again, subscribe to the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast and uh, follow us and share the news. The only thing that we have and the only for- power we have is our voice. And I ask you all to use your voice. It really matters. For more details on the case, follow Nasser on Twitter at Wedadi, that's at W-E-D-D-A-D-Y, the link is in the description.
Nasser actually also gave me a detailed update on episode 16, Mauritania's democratic tipping point, when we speculated that the pressure being placed on the government by Mauritanian citizens when they were intensely mobilizing to protect the integrity of their vote about six months ago, despite the massive fraud, uh, would actually prevent President Wildad Aziz from being able to amend the constitution and run for a third term. Turns out that kind of did happen, but the military managed to reinsert itself in what is effectively another coup, uh, but one that's ongoing silently and happening to a timetable. It's a fascinating discussion that explains why exactly the president is having to leave office in June, and therefore why he's having to smuggle his money out of the country right now, which led us to this situation we're in now. You can catch that special recording only on Patreon, where we upload bonus clips for our supporters. After all, we're only able to do what we do because of their help, and I'd really appreciate it if you could go there, uh, patreon.com slash and pledge a small monthly donation. Uh, the link is in the description. In other news, a story about the Jeff Bezos hack and subsequent blackmail being instigated directly by the Saudi government of MBS is blowing up right now. We've been investigating it and publishing on our website, arabtyrantmanual.com, about it for the last two months, and we have a lot more to come on it. Um, I won't go into it now, but we also have an episode coming, um, so you can look forward to that. Thanks to Khulud for editing. I'm Ahmed Gatnash, and this is the Arab Tyrant Manual Podcast, a project of Kawakibi Foundation. Zaman, Zayati, 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 Zaman, Zayati,